Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I am your host, Tim Shiggle, managing partner of Refinery Ventures. Today, we're going to be talking to my old friend, Vic Gatto, an early stage investor who's the co-founder and CEO of Jumpstart in Nashville, Tennessee. Today, we're going to talk about our parallel paths, learning the venture business, he at Massey Birch, and me at Blue Chip Venture Company in Cincinnati, Ohio. Then Vic's going to share with us the advantages that he sees capitalizing on the healthcare hub of Nashville to build an investment platform in middle America that the giants of Silicon Valley can't compete with. And finally, we're going to talk to him about his relationship with his partner, Marcus Whitney. Vic, a white man, and Marcus, a black man, work together and leverage their different backgrounds and perspectives to tackle issues of race in the startup world, healthcare, and beyond. Please enjoy my conversation with Vic Gatto. All right. I'm excited today to be talking with my old friend, Vic Gatto, CEO and founder of Jumpstart in Nashville, Tennessee. Vic, thanks for, for joining. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to do it. It'll be fun. We, we go back a ways. I, you and I both started and ventured about the same time, both about the same age, same time yeah. we met when you were at Massey Birch and I was at Blue Chip. And Right. We both did it the right way, which is learning from other people who had, it's really apprenticeship business, right? So it's hard to get a degree in venture unless you go to Blue Chip or Massey who have done it for decades. Right. And then you learn from other people and build your own style and then we're broken off on our own after that. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that, um, I mean, we both, we, we had different paths, but we both had the same attitudes in terms of why we're in venture and also how we got in venture. Like, I think both of us were like, we don't care how much we make. We're just getting in. Right, right. That's the like, only way to get in, really, because it's hard to get in otherwise. Yeah. Right. It just it shows you if there's something you want and you want to go after it, you will make the sacrifice. So, yeah. so why don't you tell folks a little bit more about, a little bit about your background, but also importantly about Jumpstart, which has been a great and growing organization. Yes, I was, I was an entrepreneur in the 90s and then traded teams over to be in venture. And like we just talked about, I, I really wanted to learn the business. Like we were venture backed in the 90s. But it's sort of this uh, Wizard of Oz curtain, right? Like there's a lot of stuff going on back there that seems wizardly, but it's not totally transparent what happens. And I wanted to get back there. And so I went to business school here in Nashville at Vanderbilt. I mean, went to class, but but spent a lot of time trying to hang around VCs and get it, get an opportunity. Got to join Massey Birch. I was the first kind of tech, tech aware person to ever be at Messy Birch, right? So they were health investors and health and technology investors, but they didn't really have coders or people that knew what the technology was, even though they were had done some tech deals. Because that was venture at the time. You could you could be a tech investor in the 90s and not have written any code. And so they they brought me on. That's sort of what I brought to the table. And this is at 01. They believed that they needed to have some tech background. And I learned about healthcare. I didn't really know much about healthcare. And it's been incredible. So, so the you, were, last, you, were on a, you were on a healthcare track though, right? So I was, I was pre-med. I really liked the science growing up and in school and, and my mom, you know, so we, we didn't have any money. My mom wanted me to be a doctor because she felt like that was a path that would guarantee, you know, guarantee a, a good living. But when I started uh, thinking about the actual practice of medicine, I did a couple of internships and things. And the first, so I got, I got a chance to work with an orthopedic surgeon for a summer and 
this was you know pre pre HIPAA pre lots of stuff uh, in the nine in early nineties probably ninety one maybe something like that. Uh, so I got to like scrub in and you know just stay in the back but scrub into a hip replacement surgery, and it's <laughs> it's life changing. Right? It's it's phenomenal. This is blood everywhere and it's super invasive. And you either love it, which I did, or you like throw up and run from the room and can't right. can't deal with it. Yeah, that'd be um, me. And so I, I love that. But then by the end of the summer, it's kind of the same thing over and over and over again, right? So like the uh, I had this learning curve process that I just felt was a. Uh, it seemed really monotonous to envision. Forty years of an orthopedic surgeon. And some people love it. I have friends that are orthopedic surgeons, but for me, it just seemed uh, not enough variety. And so I got out of school pretty well qualified for a career I didn't want anymore. My dad was not super happy about that. And he, he literally like said, okay, you have two weeks, you know, I've paid for your education. You have two weeks to get the hell out of my house. And <laughs> so I joined a startup in Boston, FinTech startup in 93. And didn't really know much about technology. I had a Mac, but I, I didn't know that much. And they, because this is how it works in startups, they said, like, you're going to be in charge of the, all the devs. They don't like to talk to business people. And so you manage them. And so, you know, at the time we had one dev, but then as, as it grew, I, it was my job and it was really fun. I found that um, they they were great. If I gave them what they wanted, which is, you know, protection from the the accountants, they, they were great to deal with. Um, yeah, so I, so I did science growing up, but I was not, um, I didn't actually pursue a career in it. So then it was probably eight years, nine years before I came back to it. And Massey Birch was great because they had, you know, all the connections in the Nashville ecosystem that we'll talk about in a minute and sort of taught me the business of investing in healthcare. And so for 14 years, I was at Messy Birch and another spinoff uh, fund made partner there. But I always looked at the world from an entrepreneurial kind of mindset, meaning I questioned things that, you know, why do we do it this way? Why do, why? And typically the reason was, I don't know, Mr. Massey did that in 71. And so we just have done it since then. And that wasn't really satisfying. So I started playing with and experimenting with new approaches uh and in 2014 left to do my left the second firm to do my own thing which is jumpstart and really two two primary things we wanted to do at jumpstart which is be stage agnostic and invest in health across stages uh, and really kind of focus on that industry segment because i'm i feel like that's an important industry segment that needs innovation and then the uh, other piece was to really try to get the incentives aligned and get better outcomes. So, you know, typically it's a one in four kind of hits business. And I wanted to shift that to much more likely to get to success because the entrepreneurs, of course, don't have the portfolio where their risk is offset with lots of assets. They are all their eggs are in one basket. And so it just felt like we could we could set up things to get the odds better. And so that that's why I left and, and I joined with a guy named Marcus Whitney, who um, had never been a VC before, because uh, I wanted to, you know, rethink everything. And over the last six years, we've, we've raised a few funds and, and had a lot of success. I think I, you said in another interview that I listened to, you 
did you, you turned him down as an entrepreneur when you were at Messy Birch? Is that yeah, right? Yeah, that's how we met. <laughs> I had, I still have this idea that, um, you know, kind of pretty direct feedback and honest uh, transparency is uh, is healthy. And so uh, I started this process of, at first, at Massey Birch, so one of the first things I got frustrated with is Massey Birch, I don't know about Blue Chip, but Massey Birch had been in business for like 30 something years. They had never said no to an entrepreneur, right? So they just kind of kept the option value of we may want to come back to this deal. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Um, and it was terrible, right? I mean, it's, it's, not, um, it's not kind. Yeah. And I just felt like we could do better if we were, if we told people no. Right. So, uh, right. so I, I talked to uh, Doc Johnson, who you know, he he said to me, "Well, there's this option value that we want to be able to pick up. So if if the entrepreneur, you know, wins some big account and they're selling to HCA and it's a huge thing, and we have said no, then we lose that value. And you know, so I was a kid. I said, oh, oh, "Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I understand. Do you mind if I like go research?" you know, how, what, what that value is. is, there's probably a way to measure it. And we could maybe like raise money around it. Or we should, we should try to measure this better. And so Doug said, you do whatever you want. I mean, so, so I went back into all the data files and just cause I'm an asshole really looked into, you know, how many times have we picked up this option. And right. as far as I could tell, Massey Birch had never picked up an option. Like as soon as, I mean, you know, in the business, as soon as the momentum of a deal dies, the partners never come back to it. I mean, it's, it's not, it just doesn't happen right. that way. Um, and so I went back to Doc and said, listen, I think this real option value may not be as valuable as the, the brand equity that we would get from just communicating to the entrepreneurs that we're not going to do this deal because whatever. We don't think the margins are good or you don't have a defensible position or you don't have enough traction. Or it, it sounds like you, you basically use data to yeah, go back to him with a reasonable argument. Get back to Doc and say that. And, and so he, you know, he had the predictable response, which was, okay, but I don't want to talk to these damn people. So if you want to call them, then fine, you can call them. <laughs> and that, that was probably the real honest reason we had it. Uh, ever told people no because it's you know it's not yeah. super fun to tell people no and so I started on Monday afternoons I did uh, this period I called no calls where for like two hours I'd call up people that you know we weren't investing in and it wasn't a um, wasn't a discussion where they could counterpunch right so like entrepreneurs are trained to like try to counterpunch and counter objections and and make it through. Overturn and I just decisions. said, like at the beginning of the call, like I'm going to give you feedback, but but there's no reason to try to counter these objections. You, you can't counter. If you want to hear the feedback, then I'll give it to you. And if you don't want to hear it, then if you counter too much, I'm just going to say, okay, thanks, and we're not going forward. And it was incredible, not because the feedback was really that useful for me. But I think entrepreneurs really appreciated it. They, they appreciated the feedback, but also just knowing that I don't have to keep calling Messy Birch and that I can check that one off. 
Like I have, you know, I'm talking to 40 VCs and I don't have to waste time here anymore. And so I got a lot of positive kind of personal brand recognition and Massey Birch started getting more deal flow and, you know, getting better feedback. And so then probably uh, three or four years later, uh, Marcus pitched me his idea uh, at a breakfast meeting. And I, it just was terrible. Like he, he was a, a, a software engineer trying to figure out how to like launch his first, his first venture. And he was a pretty good engineer, but he was not a good entrepreneur yet. I mean, he, he grew into a really good entrepreneur, but at that time he was building basically a consultancy and, and his basic pitch was, I'm going to do software engineering and it'll be a mix of cash and equity and a bunch of startups. And I think it's going to be great. And I just said that model before breakfast. And I, that, that's not scalable. And I have like multiple tiers of risk. You're going to get this equity and, and a lot of times it's going to be worthless. And I just, I just don't see how that, maybe it's a lifestyle company. If you are really good, it's not a venture company. Marcus, like, you know, took that in and tried to counter a little bit, you know, but I was, I wasn't asking for him to counter. I just was saying like, we're not going to do it. So good luck. And, you know, I wish you well, I hope it works. And then he spent a year talking to other VCs uh, around Nashville and around the Southeast and no one really told him no. They just, you know, it's, it's one of the problems with the middle America VCs is they just don't give good feedback. And so uh, he came back a year later and he had a whole new idea that didn't even need financing. Uh, but he said to me, like, you're the only one that actually said the truth. A bunch of other VCs kind of like wasted my time, wasted their time. And, and so we just started, started a kind of a friendship through that. At first it wasn't a friendship, just kind of like a business relationship. And then he ended up doing four different startups where he was either the founder or on the founding team over like maybe six or seven years. You kept in touch with them over that period of time. Touch, and yeah. Was... And then he really started uh, building the natural ecosystem. He, I'm not going to get it exactly right, but he went to South by Southwest in 08, mm-hmm. 07, 08, somewhere in there. When, when Twitter launched uh, at South by Twitter launched and he came back excited about social and kind of the community in Austin and started doing things like bar camp and other sort of community building activities. And I, you know, I was in the community, so I was also trying to build Nashville. And so when I started playing with the idea of doing my own fund, I pulled in 20 people in Nashville that I thought had good perspectives. And, you know, we, I bought beer and pizza and we just kind of like played around with, if we wanted to reinvent venture and realign things, how would it work? And so Marcus was in that group and then he was by far the most active and smartest and really like passionate about it. And so when, when I left my job, I asked him to join me as a partner and the two of us kind of started. You know, through this podcast, we really want to explore some of the challenges and myths uh, of doing yeah. venture outside of Silicon Valley and the, and the Northeast. Can you give us more of a flavor of, size and scope and, and focus of Jumpstart? Yeah, so we are building a stage agnostic um, health investment platform. And the way that I think that works is you can't, 
you can't sort of boil the ocean and do it all in one at one moment. So it's almost the way Marcus and I set it up is almost like building an assembly line. You have to start with like the first part of what a car needs to look like. So we started in the seed in the seed stage right. with the idea that we can go and we'll compete with you know rich doctor or an angel group, but the, the seed stage doesn't have a a lot of highly organized funds because it's not it's too small. Can't get much management fees. It's not that big. And so we will go innovate there and then sort of grow up with the portfolio. So we've done annual seed funds the last six years where we invest in 15 to 20 um, companies every year and start really learning about what do they need? What do they need help with? How do we support these companies? They're all health companies across the country. So of course, some are in Nashville, some are in San Francisco, some are in St. Louis, some are in Chicago, some are in Boston. They all have to be healthcare. And we have standard terms, right? So it's it's all one. You can have any color as long as it's black. Right. So like, this is what we do. Right. And then we we launched a venture fund. So like, as they were growing up and they need the next round of funding, we created then a venture fund that would take the best of those and support them. And now we're sort of starting a growth fund. And so I think about it like kind of building uh like an entrepreneurial effort you sort of start in a you know not that attractive part of the market and innovate and learn and then as you gain information and gain some strength then you move to a slightly you know more attractive market we won't go to like private equity and buy out you know probably for 10 20 years uh, but the idea is to sort of grow up and use our data and our industry connections as we sort of grow up the, the stages. So there are three frontier areas I think about when I when I think about you and what you're doing. One is the geographic frontier, meaning you know doing venture capital and innovation, technology innovation, healthcare innovation in Nashville or potentially in other underserved regions yeah. where you've invested. Two is healthcare itself and what's happening there. And then third is related to what's happening in this country right now, you know, particularly race relations. Uh, Marcus, you're, you know, your co-founder is black and I'm sure you guys have had in interesting conversations. So I'd yeah. love to go through each of those. So what, what have been in terms of Nashville and the ecosystem and doing venture outside of Silicon Valley, you already mentioned the, you know, the, the middle VCs not giving good feedback. What, what are some of the things you think have been kind of holding back or barriers to more innovation and what have you found to be successful? in places like Nashville? The barriers are, are really around how porous the corporations are. Right? So what I mean by that is in, in Silicon Valley, it's a competitive advantage to engage with the entrepreneurial startup world because Oracle and Cisco and Apple and Google are all hyper-competitive and they want any edge they can get and it's it's seen as kind of a open you know it's an open marketplace and access to talent and ideas is how oracle would stay strong right like it, it is a and and so the, their view is we need to be kind of understanding of what's coming up because usually they rose up and took someone else down 
And in middle America, that's not how corporations typically behave, right? They are um, large and insulated from the, from the sort of the messy entrepreneurial community. And maybe they would attend a, a demo day somewhere because they're doing a favor for somebody. But it's more like a civic duty thing that I have to do versus in Silicon Valley, it's much more like survival. Like it, it, I need to go learn and I might hire those people or even acquire their company, but I'm really just acquiring the talent. And in, in Nashville and Denver and Dallas and Cleveland, Chicago and Minneapolis and Atlanta and all these cities in the middle, the corporate partners don't have that attitude, right? They, they may get pulled in by the mayor or by some city leaders to help, but, but they don't view it as giving them an edge. And that, that makes it hard for entrepreneurs to kind of understand, is their thing really impactful and the corporations don't have it? Or is the thing just kind of like incrementally interesting, but, but not really that different? Mm-hmm. And so to me, that's the, that's the biggest challenge. How do you navigate that challenge when it comes to helping the startups ultimately find an exit or a home? If you, mm-hmm. if you really understand the user, then sometimes you can bring a better solution, right? Mm-hmm. So like Uber knew, really got to know people and knew that they didn't love the experience with taxi cabs. And then right. they sort of rethought that entire value chain and just like picked it up and replaced it completely. And that, that works. Mm-hmm. In, in healthcare, things are highly regulated. About 60% of the money comes through the federal government. And so it, it's hard to, to do that same thing. Like you might learn about patients, but they don't have the money. And then the value chain is super intertwined, right? So if you want to pluck out a transport problem in healthcare, well, it, it's, uh, you got to plug into the 911 system. And then you have to know where, what hospital to go to because the patient doesn't know. And then you have to, you don't charge the patient. You have to charge the third party insurance company. And so the value networks are so intertwined that if you don't understand the industry and how it all works, it's much more likely that you build the wrong thing. Or you may have to, you may have to build the whole stack from the consumer. Yeah. You got to build the whole stack, but that's, it's a pretty big stack. Uh, It's much easier to kind of really understand what systems are out there. And then let me, let me sort of fit my solution into that set of value, set of partners. Uh, But you really have to understand that well. And so Marcus and I viewed it as a, you know, both a challenge and a competitive advantage, right? Like we're never going to compete with big Silicon Valley folks. Like, you know, Andreessen Horowitz is a great firm. They have, I don't know, 40 times the capital that I have, and they have a much better network on the West Coast. And I can't, I'm not going to win that game, mm-hmm. but, but I can compete against them in this like very intertwined industry needs innovation, but it has to fit with what they want. Like that's an advantage in middle America that I can capitalize on and, and I'll go head to head with any Silicon Valley firm around health innovations 
because we have this huge like embedded advantage that they don't have being in being in Nashville, being in middle America. So do you have, could you share a story about a company either you're an investor in or you've been involved with in the past that kind of illustrates that capability? Yeah, I mean, I, there's a company called ScriptDrop came out of us working with Kroger. So it's, it's I mean, all my deals are super like inside baseball uh, niche things, right? So the, the regulatory structure is such that when you get a prescription issued, the pharmacy has to hold it in inventory for 90 days. And so, you know, I, I go to a, you know, I go to a cardiologist, I'm 50 years old, go to a cardiologist, you know, if a 50 year old walks into a cardiologist, they put you on a statin, which is a whole nother conversation, but, but you get it, you get a statin, but I don't have any symptoms, right? Like I'm, I'm there because my wife wanted me to go get checked because whatever, some neighbor had a heart attack. Like, you know, I, I typically don't have a lot of symptoms. So I get issued a statin, the doc sends it to my pharmacy and I go pick it up whenever, maybe. What we learned from Kroger is that about 40%, it's 38% of the scripts never get picked up. Right. And which of course has significant health issues, but they were looking at it just from a working capital, like, effort like okay i got i got all this dead inventory i got people that are filling it it has to stay there for 90 days and what how can i get rid of that and so that that's kind of how it got presented to me and then we were we went looking for a solution and we found script drop which is up there in ohio and they wanted to do delivery of prescription drugs from the pharmacy to the home and so that made sense to me. Like I have a, I have a customer and I know that this will help. I mean, there's some percentage of those people that would like to take the statin. They just, they just don't really care enough to actually go to the pharmacy and park and deal with it. But if it gets delivered, sure. So that basically guarantees that that, that drug is going to be delivered. Yeah. Right. And so, so we invested you know, it was two founders in Columbus, Ohio, they're super passionate guys, but they didn't know what they didn't know, right? They, they were trying to build this. And we we helped them sort of fit it into what Kroger needed. Um, they actually ended up selling at first to another uh, grocery chain who was more nimble and like moved faster than Kroger did. Uh, but then Kroger is a customer now. You know, if you, if you weren't really kind of on the inside talking to the pharmacies about what their issues are you might understand that medication adherence is a problem which is but how it, i usually hear about that problem i had not heard about it from an inventory management right uh, but, but if, if you go to the in this case the pharmacy customer and say we're going to help your patients take their medicine more you know okay but that's not a problem that i'm i'm not i'm not graded on that my bonus is not based on that right like that's nice but it's not going to motivate me to do anything mm -hmm. and so that that's an example i mean we have 102 assets they all come out of this like demand pull side and the reason and you'll understand this is that i'm trying to reduce the failure rate right just from a pure my time and financial return and better for the entrepreneurs and for 14 years, I found a team and got excited about what they're doing and built 
invested in the supply side. And then I turned to like try to get customers to buy it. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a bunch of, I lost a ton of money. There's a lot of times when I was five years too early, 10 years too early. Yeah. Because it made sense to me, but the customers weren't, they didn't really care. This kind of solves that. Now, maybe not every customer cares, but I know at least a large one does. And then it also de-risks the process because we can bring you bring a pretty warm customer into the into the conversation along with our money. Yep. That's a great example. What in terms of Nashville and the geography, uh, can you share a story about something there that maybe particularly interesting or surprising that people wouldn't know about in terms of entrepreneurship and startups? I mean, most people would know Nashville as Music City, right? Or or that it's I mean, before the pandemic, it's the second biggest place for uh, bachelorette parties and bachelor parties behind Vegas. So that, that's kind of the public persona and Nashville has promoted that because it drives tourism, obviously. Um, oh, wait, I think Broadway is like doubled in size, the street, the strip there's yeah. over the last five years. Yeah. That- and, you know, we have the NFL draft and all, all these like crazy big events uh, that I don't know what's going to happen now with them. But and it's a really fun city. And that's probably the like the branding that most people listening would know. Right? Uh, Nash, you know, Music City, Nashville, whatever it's called. But and we do have a lot of music here. Uh, uh, but the healthcare industry is what really drives the economy. And so the, uh, Nashville controls 58% of all the for-profit beds, the hospitals around the country, Nashville headquarters, Nashville management teams control well over half of those beds. And so, you know, if you want to distribute or, get market adoption for an innovation into hospitals within four miles of downtown Nashville, you can get over half the, the beds. Right? So now it has to be for profit because it's all for profit. They're, they're less like uh, invention of new, new medicines or new procedures. So there's plenty of academic medical center like Johns Hopkins or partners or Cleveland clinic or we don't have that. But when you're trying to like scale a business, or bring it to market at, at a at a decent scale. Nashville is is the place to come for that. Just from a, like a size, healthcare is forty seven billion dollars a year in Nashville only, and the music business is sub ten. It's like nine or ten, you know. But but I think that's not that doesn't sell as many hotel rooms. It does. It's not super exciting, uh, and so the branding has been Music City. When Marcus you and I find, were you find at, uh, what do we want to focus on? Healthcare is by far the, the much more interesting place to focus. Do you find or have you seen examples of entrepreneurs moving to Nashville with that intention, you know, getting into healthcare innovation or health tech? Yeah, you know, it's just it's just a cluster, right? So it's pretty well studied. There There is this uh, concept of corporations and then the spinoffs of those corporations create a knowledge base that then you can sort of innovate and build around, you know, like Boston certainly has like a biotech cluster. Right? So if you want to do a drug discovery thing, Cambridge is a pretty good. I mean, there are other places, but Cambridge is good for that. If you want to think about hospitals and sort of how the business of medicine works, Nashville's 
by far the best. We have a thing called the Healthcare Council, which has all everyone together and they, they sponsor events that just kind of educate the community and all the workers. And so when you are growing a healthcare company, there's a ton of talent here that you can you can pull from. Just like just like in other markets, I think if you're going to be in a frontier market, I think it's really critical to think about what are what is what are the assets in the market that you can build on. Because there's mm-hmm. in Cincinnati, there's really good like CPG strength. Right. And so, you know, I, I think it's anyway, Nashville is really strong in healthcare. And so Marcus and I wanted to do this demand pull model. And the really the only choices were music and healthcare. And healthcare is just much bigger and much more broken. There's a lot more problems in healthcare. Where do what I hear a lot in other in cities like in Nashville, people saying there's not enough capital. Do you do you hear that there? And what do you think the how would you respond yeah, I mean, to that? I, I I hear it. I think I hear it from Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. I hear, I mean, I think wherever entrepreneurs are there is a concern or a complaint that there's not enough capital just because there's never enough capital, right? Like the more capital you put in, it just kind of breeds more entrepreneurs. And so, I mean, I'll give you an, ex- I know Nashville well in, you know, one, when I started at Messy Birch, there were like two, maybe three VC firms in the city, right? That's all there was. Messy Birch and Richland, and then there was like another one that was just getting started. And, and now there probably are 13, 14, 15. So like, it, you know, it, it's, a, it's not as many as people want, but it, it's grown. And, and yet all that means is that there's more entrepreneurs starting up things and getting going. And that's kind of part of what makes a frontier market healthy, right? That, that there is growth in entrepreneurs, there's growth in the capital sources, Unfortunately, the capital follows the opportunity in my mind. Right? So the capital only comes in after the entrepreneurs have grown. I, I love that you said that. I, I, I say that a lot. I call it the first principle, which is capital follows growth. Yeah. So right. when somebody complains about lack of capital, like the capital will find its way to the opportunities. Right. Believe me, if there's growth there, there's going to be capital. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So it will be frustrating for entrepreneurs forever. There's not enough capital, but that's not, that's their opinion. I think there is enough capital. There just uh, is not as much as they want. And how have you seen the the nature of venture capital and early stage investing change from when we started back in the late eighties or late nineties? I'm sorry. Yeah. So in the, uh, I think it's really changed because of like the propagation information. Like we, we didn't have podcasts then. We didn't really have even blogging or, or significant web presence. The actual like information didn't flow very easily out of like Boston and Silicon Valley. And so you, you had this probably two or three year transition where like, I don't know, Ben Rock would invent something um, and then you know, that that term sheet would get to middle America four years later because somebody knew someone and lawyers traded around. Well, now it's probably, you know, four hours. And so the uh, the investors are getting more more aligned. And then same with the entrepreneurs. Right? There, there is a propagation of strategies and 
product development and go-to-market strategy and business models that is just much more efficient than when we started, which is great. So let's talk about the other frontier, which is the current topic, you know, recording this today on whatever, June 17th, 2020, you know, living in a unique time. We've got, we've got the uh, equivalent of the 1918 Spanish flu, the great depression and the civil rights movement all happening at the same time. All in the same year. Yeah. And you are uh, on the frontier in terms of uh, the fact that you and your partner, you're white, he's black, have different perspectives that have, you know, come into focus and debate and discussion. So if you would just share, you know, what are some of the conversations the two of you have been having and how are you uh, interpreting what's going on and navigating it? That's right. Marcus, Marcus, Whitney and I are, you know, good friends. We've been partners now for six years. We were friends before that. There's a lot of trust that has built up because we've been through, you know, wars together. And yet I didn't know a lot of this stuff around systematic racism and the pressures on the black community. Yeah. I mean, before a month ago, he hadn't talked about it. And I think that's because blacks were not rewarded to talk about things like that. And so, you know, I, I was ignorant about a lot of these things. Of course, I know about, you know, various police abuse of blacks over the past several years. There's been problems. Uh, but I didn't understand the systematic and kind of historic underpinnings of that and how, like, pervasive it was. Uh, I don't think many whites did. And so there's this really coming of education to really to the white community, I think, around how challenging our history is to the black community. I mean, our history was, it has been built on a lot of racial and racism activities over 300, 400 years. I'm still trying to understand it and then figure out what to do next. And so Marcus already knew that. And so he and I have had great conversations over the last 30 days. Um, I think just for perspective, there's one black VC in Nashville, okay? Marcus. There's 152 VCs in total. There's no Hispanic VCs. And so you have 151 white VCs and one black VC. That, that means that the VC community in Nashville, and it's similar in other cities, but I don't have the stats for it. We don't, as, a, as an industry, we don't, have, we don't have the networks into the black community to find the great entrepreneurs. We don't have the perspective to understand, I mean, in healthcare, the black experience is really important. Blacks have a lot of systematic chronic health challenges. And we don't have people that understand that experience to be able to bring solutions to them. So we need to do the right thing with the black community and try to repair and rectify wrongs that have happened for a long time. Starts with police need to not be abusive, but it's going to have to go much broader than that. But then secondly, we need to start bringing, bringing blacks into the 
into the industries to really make a difference just because it's the right thing to do and it'll be better. Thank you, you know, for sharing. Yeah, I mean, one sharing of the things that. that I'm trying to wrestle with is that um, it's super uncomfortable to talk about this stuff as a white person whose ancestors have, just by the nature of being white, my ancestors have done things that I'm not proud of. And that's uncomfortable to talk about, but I think that's the first that we have to start talking about it so that we can understand and then understanding maybe is the step to trying to figure out what to do next. Right. Actually, I have a new, a new hashtag I want to create. Maybe we'll do it together. Yeah. Okay. What is it? BLDB black lives deserve better. Uh, I, I, I yeah. think there's just been a lot of things that, you know, there, there have been different narratives, et cetera, that have just been unfair. Or and if you're growing up, you know, a young person who who's black, there's a chance that you, the context and the lens you see the world in is different and, and not necessarily um, what it should be, not as hopeful or optimistic. And that's where a lot of this starts, right? We can't, if more are going to be involved in venture, it's hard to start yeah. there, just like in the same way you are starting at the seed stage of your funds, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, it starts with education. I think that's exactly right. right. It's about trying to relearn our history, like what, what happened to get us to where we are today. It's not what I learned in the history classes and the history books. Right? Like, it's more nuanced than that. It's more complicated than that. It's a little more uncomfortable than that. And if we're going to kind of optimize for me being comfortable, that's not going to get me the education that I need. And so we need to change that. Like I need to get okay being uncomfortable and then I can start to learn about things that, you know, would be, I'd rather forget about. And unfortunately I, I'm trying to create now a, a educational like system for whites because I get a ton of inbound and Marcus gets more from white people who are, who want to do the right thing, right? who want to make a difference, want to make black lives better, but they don't know even what they don't know, or they don't know where to start. And they have a lot of questions. There's not a good, uh, there's not a good resource for that. Now it's, you're bringing up a, a great point, which is, and maybe this is what the next front fast frontier is, which is, uh, just just listening you know if more people listened and cared for their neighbors we yeah. might all be in a better place right yeah and i'm so i have been for you know 49 years so focused on getting myself ahead or getting my company ahead that i'm i haven't been really learning about what has happened sort of previous to yeah. to this and actually, some of the best, most successful entrepreneurs are in a good position to lead us through this because yeah, I'm a big customer-driven design guy, right? I think most entrepreneurs, they're solving a problem, maybe their own problem, or it's a problem on behalf of somebody else, right? At the end of the day, good entrepreneurs are servants, right? Yeah. And they're, they're figuring out how to make people's lives better. And so maybe there are some innovations in how we think or technology innovations that can help everybody sort of navigate this and come out on the other side in a better place. Thank you very much, Vic. This has been terrific. Thanks yeah, for sharing. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It was, it was fun.
Okay. Good luck with everything at Jumpstart. Thanks, Tim. You too. Thanks for listening to Fast Frontiers. If you like the show and want to know more, check out our website, fastfrontiers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and give us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Join us next week when we bring you my conversation with Chad Summy, Chief Operating Officer of Quotient Technologies.